Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the AI for All podcast. I'm Ryan Chacon. With me is my co-host, Neil Sahoda, AI advisor to the UN and one of the founders of AI for Good. Neil, how's it going? I'm doing all right, Ryan. How about yourself? Good, man. Good good to have you. So today's episode, we're going to have some really interesting topics to talk about. We're going to be discussing how companies can grow their AI knowledge um, and how they can begin thinking about incorporating AI into their decisions. Um, and to discuss this, we have Juan Sanchez, CIO of Intelios. Intelios is a nonprofit certification organization. Juan, it's great to have you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Neil. Uh, super excited to talk about this, especially from this nonprofit angle that I'm a part of. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the organization? Sure. Yeah. So I've been uh, at Intelios for four and a half years. Uh, the mission is fundamentally to certify medical professionals, uh, specifically medical imaging professionals. So when we think about that in layperson kind of terms, it's uh, sonography specifically, right? So anybody that does ultrasound, that's our, our biggest share of customer. Uh, and But we also have uh, certifications in different medical spaces around other imaging types, MRI, CT, um, and we uh, do some stuff with cardiologists. So uh, doctors as well uh, get certified in our now we have an edge, sort of an interesting edge one, which is nuclear imaging. Um, and that has a whole different set of regulations around it, which is fascinating to learn about. But, um, but you know, ultimately, the mission of the organization is to, you know, I think, improve healthcare around the world. Um, and the way we believe that happens is making sure that the people that are out there practicing this stuff know their stuff and can do it safely and accurately. Before we jump in, I have to ask you, tell me, tell us about nuclear imaging. This is like, Obviously not connected to our topics here, but I'm just curious when you mentioned nuclear and healthcare. So yeah, so since I know you're local, Ryan, so if you drive down uh, Rockville Pike, there is a building down there called the Nuclear Regulatory Agency, big brown building near White Flint Mall. So local reference for anybody in the DC area. Um, so they uh, they essentially regulate all things nuclear in the country, including this space. So nuclear imaging. Uh, if you've ever had, for example, a test where they inject you with a nuclear uh, liquid that creates contrast in the imaging equipment, that's the part that's hyper-regulated, right? Because they're legitimately injecting you with something radioactive to some degree, I guess. Uh, I am not a doctor, so don't quote me on any of this stuff. But uh, but fundamentally, and it's it's wild because it has to be regulated by the NRC. What, what happens to the radioactive material after it's injected? I know nothing. Yeah, I mean, this is, if, you, if you're interested in healthcare, this is the area to be in. I mean, you just drive down Rockville Pike, yeah, anywhere around this area, or even um, Shady Grove Road, where I am right now, it's all math, like big healthcare organizations. So it's, it's really interesting to be around here. But cool. So let's go ahead and jump into kind of uh, some of the topics I know we wanted to cover today. And the first one I want to talk about is really starting at the fundamental level of understanding AI when it comes to an organization. So how do or why do companies need to be educating themselves on things like AI and how best can they do that? Because I think that's a, there's a lot of people out there that hear a lot about this, but maybe they're not really sure where to begin or how to really think through what do I? What should I be spending my time educating myself on, as you know, as it relates to to a company or an organization? Going down first principles thinking for me is important with any of this. Um, so I look at it from the point of view of like, all right, what can I solve with this emerging technology? And I say emerging, and like I think in actually some pretty big air quotes right here, because it's been around for a long time, right? The hype cycle caught us right now because it's where we are, and and a lot of tools are coming to market that are sort of very consumer friendly and customer facing. But the fundamentals have been there for a long time, which is how do you use your data to infer new and interesting things? Um, and so inside the organization, I think the guidance I try to give is just use that first principle thinking about what are, what are problems we've had, either new ones or most likely ones that we've had for a long time. And can any of the things that we're talking about now or the things that are coming to market now give us a little bit of a benefit or a leg up from 
before, maybe they weren't solvable or because we would need more people or we would need data we didn't have uh, or the models themselves didn't exist. Neil, from your experience working a lot of different organizations through AI for Good and other work that you do, where what are some thought things you've come across as far as having to help people and companies or educate themselves around AI as it relates to their business? It often revolves around trying to understand the potential usage and because AI's got a whole new set of tools people have never seen before. And so the toolbox, they struggle. I mean, what's... Most organizations keep thinking about automation. And so, especially in the nonprofit world, you're looking at, okay, what are the off-the-shelf things I can use to help reduce some of my costs or you know, implement programming? With the, uh, these new tools, actually new things that can actually be done. And that's what I think they actually struggle, in that they can actually serve larger populations or constituents with the same amount of resources they already have. Or I've seen now that, People are trying to finally understand that some of these AI tools, because of the psychology and stuff that the use of marketing and sales, they can actually leverage these tools for improved fundraising. So if we go one step further, you know, you've kind of taken time to focus on on educating um, your organization, individuals, individuals within the organization, and so forth. How do you how do you view or how can smaller companies particularly plan and really think about incorporating AI into their business, into their decision making, things like that? Now that they've you know once they've educated themselves, now it's like okay, how do we implement? How do we adopt? How do we start thinking about AI in what is what we're doing? Um, which I assume addresses or goes back to part of of your your response earlier around what are the problems that you have. But just curious kind of how, how that kind of phase is, is or what advice you have for that phase of, of kind of the, the process when it comes to bringing AI into a business. Recent thinking I've been having around this, and it, it's somewhat informed by uh, some coursework that I'm doing actively right now. And it goes to the quality of the data you have inside your systems as they sit. I think a lot of people sort of said, oh, AI is here. The C- CEOs of companies um, love that because it's, it's, it's a thing to stick on and in, in a, in a way to lead forward. But the data still matters, right? And so for me, it's, that's what I'm trying to start to build out is like, okay, we are going to use AI and AI is going to be a, a thing that is going to allow our customers, is going to allow us, like Neil mentioned, you know, maybe some efficiencies in our processes, but certainly in sort of, I think the quality of the delivery of the, of the product we have. Um, and so, but we still need to, to figure out that the data we have is good enough to deploy on any kind of AI tool. Right. Um, certainly, uh, we we want to be mindful of things around you know obviously about around bias, and I don't I don't think the goal ever is going to be zero bias. Um, it's just less bias um, and being informed on that. I think it'd be important. Uh, so I think taking the role or framing it around like these tools are going to be uh, assistance to us. Um, they're not going to be the the things end all be all solved solutions for everything, um, and you know, at least for today, still having the human in the equation considerably. I mean, especially in our medical space, that has to be part of it. Like it can't, we can't go into this with a fervor that says AI replaces all humans. It can't. And just for today, it's not there. I think that the truth is a lot of organizations have really seen this is that you really haven't automated that many people out of jobs. I mean, what, what's happened is they, they found that there's a lot of other work that needs to be done and they're repurposing those people for more value add tasks and stuff. But I've pretty much not seen anyone essentially cut, you know, the number of employees because some of this technology. The other thing is a lot of it is not perfect. Anyone that's used, you know, Gen AI, like 
Claude or ChatGPT or MidJourney, you can see you're, you're getting the draft. It's not the, the final output. I know that Juan's chuckling because I don't know experience with that. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, Neil, I think there's a point here that I, that I think it's interesting to talk about a little bit, if you guys don't mind, which is, okay, in a few years from now, right, as these tools mature and presumably automate some of what we do today as people, I've been thinking about what that's going to do to the pipeline of talent um, almost in a, in a weirdly, uh, maybe economic sense. Uh, so maybe it's not an, not, not a perfect comparison, but it's sort of like, if we no longer need, let's say entry level people, because the AI is doing the entry level work, then how do you get people to mature into the middle of the company, so to speak? Right. And then how do you create senior positions from there? If you've completely erased the need for the entry level, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just using one particular case, but, um, is that something that, uh, you you all have heard as well or seen or thought about? I mean, it's from my standpoint, I can answer that in two words. Dewey Decimal System. It's a three-word. <laughs> right? And I think it's just that the the, the tra- trajectory of the career path is going to change. What we normally think is entry-level, there'll be other things that become entry-level. So I like it at the Dewey Decimal System because I think we're all old enough, maybe not Ryan, <laughs> that we uh, you remember we had to learn as kids that was a way to find books on the shelves. Today, you don't really need that. And I think they've actually stopped teaching it because it's like you search online with keywords, you find the book and odds are it's an ebook. So you, you get a copy that way. You don't even have a physical book. You don't need anything. It's, it's the same thing. Like in law, one of the slowest movie industries, sorry to all our legal services fans out there, but you know, some of the work that associates lawyers are doing around like research and, you know, reading complaints and filing court documents is all being automated. And it's not that, well, what's their path upwards now? It's actually just becoming like, well, now they actually focus more on case strategy, business development or rainmaking. They're, you're working on some of, some of the soft skills, jury selection. These are all still important things, but now the, the paths are open there that some of the stuff is automated, the firms can take more work on. It's now okay for them to do it earlier because they actually have more cases available for them to actually hand out. Yeah, and I think there's certain jobs, it's kind of forcing function for people to learn new skills, move up in an organization, um, or even learn new skills kind of prior going into, I think the educational component ahead of coming into a job is going to have to change. At, and just like it has to where it is today. I mean, I feel like that's that's just natural evolution of a lot of these, a lot of these jobs, a lot of these industries. Um, what was an entry job, you know, ten years ago is not an entry job now, or it might not exist, right? So, um, I think every industry is going to have to battle that kind of on their own. But there'd be a lot of similarities that kind of carry over for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a good feedback loop there too, right? You mentioned education because I mean, that's for sure. I mean, I'm not unique in thinking this, but. That's definitely a place where AI is going to play big time, both at early education, as well as like in our, even in our cases, right, with, with professionals that have been in the field for years, you know, constantly having to learn, right, the science, it's the basis of the entire thing. So uh, that's for us a huge area about how do we leverage AI to create better educational experiences for them. I think it's a really interesting point because if I think back to when I went to school, um, you know, there was a lot of professors that just over the years had a reputation of teaching the same stuff and just kind of being locked into their tenure and their same textbook year after year, which I 
but being able to have access to new information, more timely information, and and be able to teach in a kind of different way, I think is going to benefit. But yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing to think about for sure. There's an interesting aspect to this in that our learning models are still mainly based from the 19th century. Right, that's actually the way we we teach and educate people. We've automated some of those things with like VR and AI, but now you're seeing this kind of renaissance in cognitive science, where it's like there are actually more effective ways to wire your brain and learn knowledge and develop skills. Couldn't really do before, but this technology actually enables that type of learning. And so you're kind of seeing this renaissance, and there's there's this interesting pushback. I think one will like to hear that uh, people are like, are you trying to fix something that's not broken, right? And it's like, no, we're we're just trying to find a new way of doing the work. It's not about trying to fix something that's broken. It's trying to find a new, better way of doing something. And I think that's Mm -hmm. where a lot of small businesses, even medium-sized, even large businesses struggle with the nonprofits and government agencies and that sometimes we look at these things and we're like, what are we trying to fix here, right? There's nothing broken, but it's like we use new tools. We can actually do some of these things very differently that would be far more effective. There's an irony that's not lost on me in that the closer we learn about programming machines to act and behave like our own brains, we start feeding back to ourselves to not teach us like machines, more like humans. If we're saying that certain entry-level tasks will soon go to the wayside of, of technology and automation, and then the requirement in order to kind of have that new entry level is going to be higher, how do you think that's going to motivate or maybe not motivate people to learn those skills that are required in order to advance their career? Do you think that's going to become more of a challenge for people? Do you feel like people are going to be less motivated to do those kinds of things? Or do you feel like there's still going to be plenty of opportunity um, if for people who want it? I'll go with the positive side of that, the more optimistic side, which I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity. And for me, the the, the um, example that kind of hit my my brain, as you said, it was uh, and I've said this before to friends, but you know, the iPhone never came with an instruction manual. Uh, the motivation to learn it because of, of the value that was on, that you were unlocking by using that device in your life was so great that it immediately dissolved any barrier that you were going to put in front of it. I mean, you know, shout out to my mom who uses all the iPhone and Apple things and she's, you know, in her mid eighties. Um, to me, that's all the proof I need to see. Right. So I think this kind of uh, these kind of tools that are going to be coming forward for us and changing the way we work, they're just going to be so valuable to you and to learn them that you're going to, to just do it either, you know, actively or, or by, by, um, by osmosis almost. As certain kind of jobs become less desirable, um, there'll be more opportunity for those, for people to do those less desirable jobs to kind of grow in their career. So it's more of, let's talk about like more manual labor and like physical and hard skill type stuff. Um, like carpentry and things like that, where you're really probably not for the near future going to have AI come in and, and take over those roles. So it kind of created opportunities for people who were not able to advance themselves in those AI generated jobs because or the jobs that AI was taking to have opportunity to new opportunity that maybe people didn't didn't really realize were there. So I'm curious how this is going to really impact people's drive for changing careers, learning new skills, focusing on maybe skills that people thought weren't that important, but maybe now will become because a lot of stuff is being could potentially be done by AI and things like that. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I think you're right. I think the trades, for example, are going to benefit from this um, in not the way that I think, it's sort of the way you're insinuating, which is I may choose to just opt out of the entire technology world and go be a tradesperson. 
um, because that's just a more fulfilling job for me today, right? And I can maybe make the same amount of money as I'm making, uh, you know, jockeying AI around. Um, I, I, in fact, I had a, a, an interesting little anecdote here to tell quickly, which was amazing. Uh, Friday, I went and got a haircut and, uh, and I sat there and, for, and so, you know, you usually have your conversation with the person going to cut your hair and what do you want to do? And I said, hang on. So I opened my phone and I opened up a bunch of lens of pictures that were all AI generated of myself, you know, different hair, hairstyles. And it wasn't about that, right? I actually just lens as a fun thing, like the rest of us did. So we could put it on our LinkedIn profile, but, um, and pretend like we're not aging, but so I showed, I showed the guy these pictures and said, look, here's the one that I've been using on all my like internal chat tools, you know, and my profile pictures. And he's like, that's a good haircut. And he looked at it. He's like, this is amazing. He's like, like, has anybody ever walked in here and shown you AI generated pictures? He's like, no, but I'm absolutely going to ask people to do that because then we conversation about what you want and you can see yourself reflected in the tool. And, you know, those pictures are there. He said, but he added this, which is back to the trades idea. You still have to know how to cut hair. You're not going to have a robot, you know, do your, I mean, not yet, uh, do your haircut. I don't know if I would trust it. No, I'm not going to trust that. I mean, we have robot border, uh, robot barbers in Star Wars. Yeah, that's true. I think a lot of time has to go by uh, proving that they will not mess things up for me to trust that. I've been going to the same person since I was like 14 years old, and it's just like trusted. I know what I'm going to get. Let me ask you this: so, um, you know, when we talk about or people hear about things um, out just through their browsing of social media, their chats with colleagues, um, you know, these these hype cycles are kind of just naturally developed within different organizations and just kind of across society. And when it comes to AI, I think it's been very big hype cycle for the last number of months until the end of last year. How do companies or how can companies navigate that hype? And you know, how do these hype cycles really influence things um, within an organization? Because it's, it's very easy for certain people within an organization maybe chase the latest and, and hottest thing. But in reality, you know, some of these hype cycles do end and they kind of fizzle out and those things are not necessarily as big as you thought. So how, how do you how do you evaluate what is worth paying attention to? What is worth learning about to then incorporate and uh, potentially bring into your business? Yeah, it's a deep question. Um, all right, let me tackle it from first the really pragmatic side, which is when the hype got real, real hype. Um, and, and my colleagues, the same thing, a lot of calls to, Hey, you all CIOs, we need policies and procedures around AI. So that's for like internal to the business, right? That one I took a pause on and I said, don't think we need anything separate for AI. I think what we need are guidelines, right? So just some, some sanity checks, which again, I'll go back to, they stole these guidelines that I, and I legitimately wrote them in 15 minutes in a very condensed style and published them and made them freely available to everybody in the nonprofit community, right? So it was first, back to first principles, check what you think you're looking at, right? Before you release it to the public, be careful about sharing that anything that's intellectual property that you wouldn't share in a public sphere anyway. Um, assess the cybersecurity risk of the tool uh, and then move forward with it, right? Just adapt, adapt those, um, those first principles like you would to anything we use. Uh, I think the new, maybe the nuance or the new thing here is sort of like that trust thing or like don't just assume the thing that the thing's spitting back at you, especially if you're using a, a chat style uh, interface, right? That, the, that those are like the words. Um, and I think the other thing I've added to that in the recent past is the machine isn't lying to you. 
It is just trying to formulate the best string of words together that it thinks meets its algorithmic need, right? Or it's, it's optimization. But don't, don't make the mistake of thinking the thing on the other end is a human that it's actively trying to lie to you. It's not, right? So that, that was it for our end, right? Recently, we, we talked about it a little more uh, to see if there was still an opportunity now to do a, a standalone policy. I'm still of the thinking that you don't because you should have policies already in your organization that speak to a lot of what any of these tools would, would, uh, would expose you to as far as risk. Uh, on the other side, right? So that was sort of the internal, very like practical, okay, we just got to keep running the business. Uh, how do I help people find our way through this? On the other side of it, it's who, um, who are the platforms, who are the companies that can help us deliver a better product to the customer. Okay. So in our case, right, as I mentioned, we are in the assessment business primarily, right? So we write exams. And as I mentioned, one of our key goals is also to reinvent the way those things are done. So naturally for us, it's let's look at companies out there that are either in that assessment space or education space um, that can help us produce a better quality tool that assesses the performance of the people that are coming to us for that assessment. Uh, and, and then move from there, right? Uh, I, I don't think in companies our size, so I know one of the things that we want to talk about is that, you know, we're a smaller organization um, and, you know, we don't have unlimited money, especially as a nonprofit. So a lot of this has to be done through uh, partnerships. Um, not the, the, I don't think the play here for us, at least not immediately until costs come down even further, that it's going to be to build our own things. It's absolutely going to partner and leverage what other folks are doing. And then also benefit from the wisdom of the collective, um, working with, with other partnership organizations that are similar to ours or in the same space as us and trying to figure out, you know, sort of uh, coordinating with each other on what we're learning collectively um, to help inform each other. So you mentioned kind of you know, your role in particular as a CIO, I mean, there's lots of obviously CIOs and, and other organizations that have to evaluate and understand all these different things, different technologies that come around. Um, so, so how how is AI kind of impacting how you've seen CIOs and their role in responding and helping organizations like absorb these technologies that are emerging very quickly? Like, what, what kind of things are you seeing, and and what things should be thought about for you know other CIOs out there that are listening? Yeah. Uh, so, guiding principle for me there is take the tool. If it makes your life better, uh, so just again, super simple, take the tool if it makes your life better, but only take the tool if it makes your life better. And we're also paying for that tool already because we've seen a lot of that. That's been uh, sort of the early thing right now. It's been everybody that we're partnering with from a SaaS platform perspective had to sort of also now with AI, right? Extra strength AI in their, in their platform. Um, and so I'm fine with that, but let's make sure that we are at least under a contract or under some sort of legal coverage that if we start using the AI component that they're introducing, uh, that it's not exposing us to unnecessary risk, number one. And then number two, go back to the usability part of it is, is it a toy or is it something that legitimately is adding value to either the way you work on a daily basis or, or the outputs that you put out as a person that does a particular kind of work or even better, is it improving the outcomes that you're having either as an individual or as a team? Um, and if the answer to those questions is yes, then keep, they can keep doing that. Um, if the answer is, you know, sort of, but uh, wait and see, then wait and see. Um, 
I think that's sort of been my philosophy so far. One thing you mentioned earlier in our conversation that I wanted to come back to is you talked about, especially for smaller companies, being able to determine and evaluate that they if they have good data. How, how does how do you kind of evaluate, how does an organization evaluate if they have good data? And if if they don't, how do they go about getting that? That's a great one for for some of the work that we're particularly doing right now. All right. So first first things first is hopefully in your organization, you've made some effort around data governance, right? And I, and I usually, I, I hate kind of starting with that because it's such a boring topic in a lot of ways, which is like, okay, I know where our data is. Our databases are, cr- are properly constructed. I have, you know, data definition catalogs published and up to date. Uh, none of that stuff is sexy, right? But turns out, uh, even though before it seemed like it was just uh, things that you had to do, now it's paying dividends if you have done them. Or you know, So I think start there if you haven't done them. If you've done them, congratulations, because now at least you know where things are. Now, for as long as I've been doing this, and I've been in the, te- in the tech space for over 20 years, yeah, I've been hearing that we have bad data. Our data is no good. Um, we, we, you know, we need to clean it. We've got duplicates. We've got to merge records. We have the, yeah, okay, so all that fund- foundational data. Uh, the, the bad news is I don't think any of that is going away. However, uh, I think where AI can, it can itself be a tool to unlock itself later for other uses. So what I mean by that is if we, if we, t- if we think about um, machine learning, as I, I mean, and I think fairly, right, you would agree that machine learning is considered a subset or, you know, a part of AI, right? I mean, in the conversation, that's that's a thing. Um, if we can adopt uh, some machine learning uh, knowledge against the data that we do have or that we don't have, and I know in the previous episode, uh, you guys interviewed uh, one of the people from Tonic, uh, which does synthetic data, right? So there's an there's an idea there that can we extrapolate? Can we? Um, and I mean, really the 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 fancy term, not so fancy, is impute. Can we impute data that we're missing in order to increase its quality for us to then do something further with it later, right? So I think that's a very practical application of sort of the the um, the foundational AI stuff that isn't the the sexy chat GPT stuff, uh, but but still requires um, modern technology, right? Modern machine learning uh, approaches to unlock. Uh, so that's where I would guide people to look and say, understand what you have through boring governance. Um, ask the business or even better, ask your customers what their main problems are. Overlay that with, okay, what do we have and what, where are our gaps? And, uh, and then work with some machine learning to fill in those gaps and then eventually uh, deploy that if you if you can deploy that against an AI model that does better prediction for you, for example. So you can you can tailor your solution to the customer ultimately. So the last question I want to ask you before we wrap up here is just around kind of taking everything we talked about today. If if you were to give just a couple pieces of advice for people and companies looking to how to evaluate and adopt AI solutions, how best they can do that to give increase the likelihood of success, bringing that internally, what would you kind of say to them? I think there's going to be an emergence of a, of a couple of things. I think one is going to be, uh, so if you're buying an off-the-shelf solution, um, and even if it's not, I mean, I think there's, a, there's a, a question to be asked there about a company, which is, can that company audit its algorithm? So I think that's important. Um, if, if the proposition, the value proposition of some of these models is to, like I said before, reduce bias, for example, right? 
just make, make, help us make better quality decisions that we couldn't make ever before, um, then I think it behooves us to understand what's inside that black box uh, a little bit. Uh, and, and certainly depending on how we deploy that, right? Because the last thing we want to do is create an, a, a worse situation by accident um, than what we had before. In fact, I just read an article yesterday, it was from a, a little while ago, but um, how using, using uh, race data in diagnostic uh, models was creating a really perverse effect in uh, who got treatment and who didn't get treatment specifically around uh, kidney disease, right? So that's the last thing we want, especially, again, we're in the medical space. I think that's one. I think the other one, which is an emerging one um, for me, just because it's sort of part of the core principles that we want to have, uh, what is, if you're buying again from a, from a third-party company and let's say they're using um, supervised learning for their models, right? Where are they getting the labor for that, right? Because, you know, uh, we've heard horror stories about um, content moderation on social media, pap plap, right? And the horrors of some what people have to do and endure to make sure that other people in the world don't see the most heinous stuff in the world, right? I think the same thing applies here, which is uh, not so much from a from you're looking at bad stuff, but more from are you getting paid uh, well for doing labeling work? Um, and do we care about that as a company, right? Do we care about the the provenance of where this work comes from? I think that might be, that's more emerging. I don't think there's a lot of people talking about that right now. I certainly am not going to be utopic and say, oh, uh, just because you can't prove that you're not going to use a tool. I mean, I, I live in the real world, I think. So I think that's not a thing today, but I hope it becomes a thing further. Um, so there, So that's the second part. And all of that for me wraps into the ethics. And then finally, like, it's just can the tool show us, provably show us an improvement in a particular outcome we're looking for? Um, and I think that just comes back down to, wouldn't that be the thing we were asking about everything we've bought for, the, for however long we've been doing technology, right? Um, but I think this is the unique part of this is that it's just that weird unknown of what is the algorithm doing? Um, and I think pushing the vendors to be able to audit either third party or themselves and, and show that back to the customer buying that that um, that tool set. Yeah, I think it's interesting because if you really are paying attention to the space, there's lots of conversations and concerns around bias in models. The less you really understand about the inner workings of any solution or just AI in general, the more hesitation that, that those kinds of conversations and those headlines can create for people to adopt. Because the last thing I think people want is for them to bring in a tool that is giving them results that are not what they're looking for or influenced by some level of bias that is not so basically giving them what they thought they were going to get from a data standpoint or like an output standpoint. Um, so I, I'm curious to see how that impacts adoption across the board. Um, and then to your to one of your last points around making sure that the tool or the solution is actually has a kind of tangible output, like to be able to evaluate it, just like you said, we do with basically everything we've adopted in the past. Um, that was something I think it was uh, was it Mark Andreessen and uh, Andreessen Horowitz. They put out a whole thing about that technology is great, um, and it's you know it's cool to show neat things that your technology can do. But if it's not providing a real solution, then kind of what are we doing? So um, that is something that we've noticed in we got kind of got our start in the IoT space, and that's what we've seen over the last like six seven years: the evolution of showcasing and focusing on technology to now finally showcasing and being focused and 
understanding the value of a full solution and that being kind of where we are of people wanting that. Um, and that's where we got to get to get to with the AI side too. It, it can't just be showcasing how neat this tool is or what you know this technology can do. It's no, let's see how it really works and provides real value to an organization before they invest in it. You know, I, I don't want to sort of come off as saying like, oh, don't take this on and, be, and being a Luddite about it. I don't think that's the right play either. So I think there's a way internally for, for you to strategically deploy this in gates, right? You can certainly adopt AI, but test it as much as you can internally before you start sort of releasing it, releasing it in sort of, especially to your you know customer facing uh, world. But, and even when you start doing that, just do incremental feature release kind of thinking around it, which is this is safe enough to try now. Okay, let's put that out into the wild. Now what's, you know, what else can, what's the next horizon out of this feature set that we can leverage? Go through the battery of validation there and then do the same thing and repeat that cycle. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a pretty reasonable approach to, to incorporating this stuff versus like, let's just buy this thing and we're going to tell the board that all the things do AI. Well, great. Yeah. It's interesting to see the use of the term AI when it comes to anything. So thanks for being on. Man. This has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's super cool to learn that you're local as well. For our audience who wants to learn more about the organization, what y'all are doing, maybe follow up with any questions or thoughts, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah. So website, uh, intellios.org, uh, you'll see that there are a collection of other brands sort of under that website. Um, those just represent our different uh, medical disciplines, if you want to call them that, uh, the way we break things out. But intellios.org is the site. And then uh, if uh, you want to get in touch with me, it's just uh, first name, last name, at, first name dot last name at intellios.org. Happy to talk there or uh, on LinkedIn. But of course, I've got a very common name, so that's going to be a hard time. But if you look for me for Intellios and, and my name, you'll, you'll find me on LinkedIn. So happy to connect on there too. Well, Juan, thank you so much for being on here. Sorry that we had some technical difficulties with Neil, but um, uh, so we'll, we'll kind of get that worked out on our end. But really appreciate you being on and excited to potentially have you back in the future to continue this conversation and talk further about what's going on in the space. Yeah, totally. Would love to. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs>